I'm Claire Parker. And I'm Ashley Hamilton. And this is Celebrity Memoir Book Club, the podcast where we take a beautifully baked batch of pages and we reheat them as leftovers with our own added flavor. Okay, this is one of our last times announcing it, but we are going to be headed to Portland and Seattle and Dallas and Austin in the next couple of days. So if you live in one of those cities and you want to come hang out, you should probably come get a ticket now because if you wait, three weeks we'll have left and then we won't come back for probably a while. And Ashley. Yes, Claire. If you were a celebrity and you wrote a memoir, what would you call last week's memoir? I want to call it Setting the Record Straight. This isn't even a chapter of my memoir. This feels like a VH1 special. (laughs) Yeah. I just want to use my time up top this week to set the record straight. I have been getting more and more comments from people who say, the way you talk about Bug, my dog, they say, I think you're talking about some sort of crust punk of a dog. They think I have one of those white purse dogs, okay? I think you have to clarify because to me, a crust punk is the opposite of a white purse dog. They're known for their crusty eyes. And everyone goes, oh, I thought you had a crusty eyed dog. Okay, but I think a crust punk is like you do have a crust punk dog. (laughs) (laughs) So I'm like confused. Okay, well, she's not a crusty eyed designer dog. She is a majestic American bully mix. She is chocolate brown with golden highlights. She literally shimmers in the sun. She is a supermodel, a global sensation. I just wanted to let people know because the amount of people who think that she's either like a scraggly little rat dog or a human, (laughs) something between the two. She's like a beautiful, perfect dog. Like when you're like, oh, what kind of dog would a supermodel be? That's not true. (laughs) Bug is 5'2 at best. That's not true. You think that's a tall dog? You sound insane right now. Stop lying. I think her proportions are long. She would be one of those people that becomes a model. She'd be like, Kara Delevingne. <laughs> yeah, we've said that a million times. I know. Someone with like a magnetism where you're like, it doesn't even matter that she's five foot four. She's just too pretty to not take a picture of. And then she has, she's a problem to work with. Okay. Thank you for clarifying. <laughs> Anyway, Claire, if you were writing a memoir, what would you title last week's chapter? I don't know. My life, it just goes on. Do you know what I mean? Like, you just keep living days and they can't all be special. (laughs) Not every day can have something happen. And sometimes you can go seven days and not have something happen. The big thing that happened in my life, Puss in Boots is finally out. (laughs) Mac has been waiting for this one. He's been waiting for this one. We got through about half of it last night. I got sleepy. We went to bed and tonight we're going to finish it. I don't know, man. 1,400 minutes is too many minutes. I can't do something special with all those minutes. It's a lot of minutes. I will say, and then to have them every day and then every week is another week. It's like a deluge. (laughs) It's just an onslaught of enough, enough. Let me me die. I've said it before and I'll say it again. Life has to end somewhere. And with modern medicine, it's too much. Everybody out there, they're always like, I'd want to live forever. I'm like, what did you do yesterday, man? Oh, my God. I would not want to live forever. Live forever. You bitches ain't even living while you're alive. (laughs) So should we get into this week's chapters? The woman who loved loss and what we aided, Padma Lakshmi. One thing I'll say about this book that I off the bat was immediately disappointed by. No pictures. No pictures. If you're going to be a professional model, and this is a note, You have to put photos in your book because the treat is that in the middle, I get to look at you young. 
I know. I had to Google photos of her because I wanted my treat anyway. And she <laughs> is so beautiful. It is crazy. You're like, yeah, that is a model. That is someone who should exclusively be with billionaires. And boy, was she. Anyway, so I will say about this book is that it is dense. This is going to sound lame to like food analogy, her food analogies, but this book is very rich. Like the writing is very rich and dense and it's good, but you can't have it all at once. This was not a book to speed read. I do recommend reading this book. I really enjoyed it, but it's not a book you should read with a deadline. It's a book that you take and read like 10, 20 pages at a time in a relaxing spot. I like this book. I'll say off the bat, I think Padma is an incredibly smart, reflective, and introspective woman. I do agree that it was a long book. I can't even explain it, but the margins of each page are very small. So not only is it like 325 pages, which isn't that bad, but like they also start all the way at the tippy top of the page and go to the tippy bottom of the page. Yeah, (laughs) there's no breaks. It's heavy, but I liked it a lot. And she has lived a phenomenally interesting life. Yeah, that's true. So this book starts out at the end of her marriage to Salman Rushdie, who is an author that is supposedly very famous for several notable works. And I looked them up. Not notable to me. Yeah, I wouldn't have expected that. I I knew who he was. (laughs) I knew who he was. Like, I knew the name. Did you? Yeah, I've heard the name Salman Rushdie. I've heard of it, but I was like, okay, so you're kind of a celebrity who also writes because I don't think you're famous for your books. Ashley is not stricken by Padma's disease of needing to be seen as a high intellectual. <laughs> and that's why you'll never end up marrying Salman Rushdie, which is honestly for the best. <laughs> I think I'll come out better for it. I think it'll protect you that you don't want to be accepted by Susan Sontag. I've heard of her too. But again, what's she even done? <laughs> uh, um, lots of people write Salman <laughs> So she starts at the end of 2007. And I want to say up front, we both really, really liked her. And I do think she's really smart. This is one of those books where you put it down and you go, wait, what? <laughs> she is like a celebrity love to say homeless at the Surrey Hotel, which she called the Surrey Hotel because she was there post-divorce. She calls it a musty residential place, much like the Chelsea Hotel, but without the artist. The dusty beige and brown linoleum walls was a refuge. It was a nice hotel. She was leaving a very fancy brownstone to go live in a very nice hotel. But I understand that emotionally, this was not a home. Right. But I did have it in my mind that she was in like a hostel. (laughs) So it's the end of her marriage. She, She does a really good job of writing for you what drew her to him and then what separated them ultimately. Yeah. So the first couple chapters are about this relationship that started in 1999 and went on through 2007. So they had met at a very cool swanky party hosted by Tina Brown, who was the former editor-in-chief of Vanity Fair and now the New Yorker editor. And she was known for having these cool parties where she invited actors, models, writers, thinkers, philosophers, everybody cool and chic. It was very what they pretend happens in Sex and the City, I feel. that there's just like all these people mingling. She does have a way of being like, and why was I there? And it's like, well, Padma, you were a big model and she had just published a cookbook. Easy Exotic, a model's low-fat recipes from around the world. The man I had left was like that. He could illuminate any room no matter how dim. Like it was just an all eyes on him situation. She was very drawn to him. At first, I thought it was strange that someone is important, and I assumed, busy as he must be, had time to talk as often as we did. Little did I know that writers are incredibly gifted at finding ways not to write. So they meet at this party, and he gets her number, and he's calling her constantly. It was the brand new days of cell phones, and he's calling her two, three times a day. He is also married. Yeah. What would my friends think of me having this telephonic relationship with a married author almost a quarter of a century older than me and living in England with a special branch security protection? 
By the way, at this point in time, he had a fatwa against him. Yeah. So his most notable work, Midnight's Children, criticized Islam. And because of that, the Ayatollah Khomeini had put a fatwa on him, which means that he thought he should be dead. And there was an assassination attempt. Everywhere he went, he had to have security with him. Yeah. And she really writes this picture of being in a bad place in her life. So she had just moved to L.A. Most of her 20s, she had been in Italy and France. She'd been modeling throughout Europe. She moved back to America. And then she was in L.A. kind of trying to make it as an actress, which she was having a real crisis of confidence. It is not easy when you're suddenly getting rejected at every turn as you try to break into a new industry. In the midst of a crisis of self-worth, I eagerly took up the fantastical notion that I had begun to inspire this great man. His attention, almost more than his charm, seduced me. And so she talks about how he was calling her constantly, and she loved to pretend that they were friends. And then, of course, they met up in New York, and they go for lunch. And lunch turns into dinner, and dinner turns into her leaving in three in the morning. She's ashamed of having done that. And so she tries to push their relationship back to friendship. And that is just not a thing. For the next few months, they're constantly talking on the phone. And every time they have sex, she pretends that they didn't. And they just go back talking on the phone. And she's like, okay, well, it won't happen again. He goes out to LA and they have sex the whole time. Or he invites her to Paris for four days to accept an award on his behalf. And he gets her, quote unquote, her own hotel room that, of course, she never once uses. And they have sex the whole time. And she goes, I had become one of those women you read about and cannot imagine being. My morality and sense of right were eroded by the allure of this man's ardor and attention. So then he calls her and says, I'm leaving my wife. As hard as it might be to believe, this development was a shock to me. I didn't know what to expect from our relationship, but I had not expected that. We had never discussed our future. So their relationship becomes a real relationship. And pretty quickly, there are downsides to it. It's one of those things where I think she still thinks back very fondly on, but you're like, all right, well, there's the holes. She talks about how he would be in his office writing late and she would come in and give him feedback. And she thought he was like very excited to have her feedback, but... Ultimately, he made it clear that anything but my gushing approval would be ignored. But I didn't mind. He was the writer after all. I will say, yeah, obviously, he wasn't looking for your approval. Like, at this point, she is a writer and she writes for magazines. She's written this book. She is a writer in her own right. But at that point, she was just like a retired model who was dating this man who is literally like 23 years older than her, who is a very famous author. So that's one of the first signs. I don't think that would have been that bad. But at the same time, her career is taking off. She joins The Melting Pot, a series that aired every day at the same hour, each episode featuring a different pair of tag team chefs representing a particular world cuisine. And she's very nervous about it because she's like, I wasn't a chef, but a home cook. It was the first time, but far from the last, that I would feel completely out of my depth in my food world. At this point in her life, she's trying to be an actress. She has come back from Italy where she was a model for six or seven years. And she was the host of a daytime television show there. Yeah. And so she's coming back. She had moved to L.A. to try to become an actress. She's not having a lot of luck. She feels like anywhere up on the ladder that she had gotten to in Europe, not only is she at the bottom of the U.S., but in the U.S. because of like racism and her lack of community here. She's just like, I'm right back at literally square one. I'm not getting anything. She's about to turn 30. She doesn't know what to do. And that's when she meets him and kind of falls in his trenches. Things do work out for Padma. It does seem like very quickly. She's like, I had nothing except for this cookbook. And then, of course, a couple of times I got on the Food Channel. And then, of course, they did immediately give me a hosting gig where once a week I was doing a food thing. And then immediately after that, I was hosting documentaries called Padma's Passport, where I went all over the world and did food stuff. And I'm like, okay, so you didn't have nothing. Yeah, but she doesn't really dive into any of those accomplishments. There's a point in this book where she's like, I didn't have anything. I had luckily just gotten a Pantene deal to hold me over. And it's like, 
I think you were the face of Pantene for a couple of years. That was definitely a several digit deal. Yeah, she's an interesting way of kind of acting like these huge accomplishments are just small stepping stones. She actually acknowledges when she was able to take a step back and be like, oh, things are going good. I don't have to keep worrying about the next thing. But that is part of the business is you never know when the next job will come. One great job could be your last job ever. I don't know if you've taken the love language test, but throw your results out the window because Dipsy has invented a whole new love language with sexy stories for whatever mood you're in. Dipsy is an app full of hundreds of short, sexy audio stories designed by women for women. They bring scenarios to life with immersive soundscapes and realistic characters, discover stories about second chance romances, adventurous vacation flings, and hot and heavy hookups. There's new content released every single week, so in between listening to your favorite stories again and again, you can always find something new to explore. They also have sleep stories, wellness sessions, and sexy stories you can read. Sometimes you just want to get to the story that you've experienced, the one that you know turns you on, but it is so nice to have this massive library of stories that sometimes you want to experience something new from the comfort of your own room. Let Dipsy be your go-to place to spice up your me time, explore your fantasies, relax and unwind, or heat things up with a partner. Like I said, I have my favorite Dipsy stories that I have bookmarked, but I'm excited to dive into some of these wellness sessions as well and go beyond just sexual wellness with Dipsy. For listeners of the show, Dipsy is offering an extended 30-day free trial when you go to dipsystories.com slash worm. That's 30 days of full access for free when you go to dipsy, D-I-P-S-E-A, stories.com slash worm. Dipsystories.com slash worm. So then she dives into the food of this relationship. When she was with Salman, she felt very inferior around his friends and he loved having dinner parties, so she would busy herself in the kitchen. I cut my hands a little too busy. I cooked three times the amount I should have. We didn't even have room in the fridge for the leftover lemon rice and raita. It was very easy for her to dive headfirst into the kitchen instead of sitting at the table and feeling like she didn't have anything to add because she's like, this is what I can add. I can make really good food. Yeah. And she felt super insecure around all of his famous writer friends. So by 2001, she had started writing. She's writing little articles for Vogue and then Harper's Bazaar and the New York Times. She's writing style stuff and then more and more op-ed pieces. And then she gets the deal for her second cookbook. And her career is, as we said, already starting to take off. I think many people would say her career had been up and going for quite some time now. The way that she talks about kind of being aimless, I do think that when you're at the level of success that they want a cookbook from you, that's pretty famous. What she says is that they saw the marketing hook of here's what a model eats. And I do think yeah, that that is quite the hook. She also feels a lot of insecurity about having been a model at all. My modeling career had been born of financial necessity and then pursued because I'd become easily accustomed to the lifestyle and, of course, the money. I'd been able to pay off my college loans before many of my peers even settled into their first jobs. But I felt some measure of self-loathing and deep insecurity for being in a profession that didn't engage my mind that seemed to be due to no accomplishment of my own, but rather the alchemy of the genes endowed to me by my parents. I wasn't feeling guilty or bothered enough, however, to do something about it until the flow of work slowed down. So I feel like this is why I really like her. She's super self-aware and very like, I was embarrassed that I was a model, not so embarrassed that I quit and I didn't quit until they quit me. And she, not always, but I'd say for the most part, enough to make her a reliable, likable narrator. She has that sense of perspective. And so being with Salman really gave her that internal sense of, oh, if someone smart likes you, then you must be smart too. And she says he could talk to me about anything. And I felt constantly like I was learning from him. And that really scratched that itch of wanting to learn. 
She also says for Salmon, my schedule also made it easy for me to travel around the globe with Salmon for awards, literary festivals, and red carpets, but it was unpredictable and work came in waves. I noticed how grumpy he would get if my schedule conflicted with his, and lately I seemed to always be in the wrong place at the wrong time. So then she's talking to Bravo about doing a food competition show. She's working with Andy Cohen, and this is where the gears for Top Chef start turning. But as soon as they pick up the show, she has another series that she's already committed to. So she's like, well, I can't host that. I have another thing going on. So she was not the host of the first season of Top Chef. And she says about her career overall, if I got a call back, I was happy. But then I'd have to break it to my husband that I couldn't leave with him on one of his upcoming trips to Austria or Brazil. If I told my agent that I couldn't go to the callback, my agent, who had been in the heart to get in the first place, would think I was crazy. So she had studied actually to be an actress. She got a degree in acting. She's always getting cast in these like period pieces. So she had done one in Britain that had gone nowhere. Then one day, several months later, I got a call from Andy Cohen again. Are you free now? He asked. They were greenlighting the show for a second season. And while the ratings were modestly good, they were going to make changes and put a lot more resources behind it. So she hosts the second season of Top Chef and things are going well for her professionally. She's feeling better about herself. And now she starts talking about an issue that she's had for two decades. She has horrible, horrible period pains. Soon I began to have pain not only during that one week in the month I bled, but also while ovulating. I could tell which ovary produced the egg being expelled that month just by where the pain emanated from. Along with the cramping, bloating, and general achy malaise, I began to feel my whole pelvis go numb. At times I also had lower back pain and a pain that shoots down one leg. So... You get a lot of the usual like maddening details about doctors just not believing her her whole life, the amount of times she's been prescribed Tylenol, the amount of times she's been told by other women that it just like is what it is. My mother told me from a very early age what her mother had told her, that this was just our lot in life. She said the only thing to do was to try very hard not to let it affect any more of my life than I had to. So I compartmentalized the pain, tried to mostly sequester myself in bed until it subsided enough that I could get up. So she is diagnosed with endometriosis. Finally. But this is after years of not knowing what it was. And she is only diagnosed when it almost comes to the end of her marriage. And she is in so much pain that it's no longer just when she's getting her period, just when she's ovulating. It's like at random times too. And Salman is feeling very frustrated because she's using it as an excuse to not have sex with him. I mean, he thinks she's using it as an excuse to not have sex, but really she is in so much physical pain so much of the time. When she finally gets the diagnosis, I wasn't crazy or dramatic and I didn't have a low threshold for pain. In fact, I probably had a high threshold for pain and that may have been part of the problem. I feel like this is a story of every woman. The pain they were told they were crazy about is actually the worst pain any humans ever felt. And it's crazy that they're just walking around with it. So she finally gets this surgery to remove a lot of the scarring that had happened. I've always heard of endometriosis and how painful it is for women. She goes through and explains exactly what it is. I'm not going to do that because it would take a lot of time. But I just want to say I think she is an incredible advocate for endometriosis. I know in life and then specifically in this book, I feel like she's really great at explaining it and her experience. And of course, if she could have TV money and nobody knows, then what hope is there for anyone? So she finally gets the surgery. And when she wakes up, the doctor asked if I knew that part of my left ovary had been removed during a previous operation. Incredibly, I didn't. I learned the surgery had taken four and a half hours. My kidneys were in stents. I had stitches on four major organs. And that of the 19 biopsies performed, 17 came back positive as deeply infiltrating endometriosis tissue. But the fact that a doctor could take a part of your organ and not let you know is crazy. I mean, it's really, really maddening how disrespectful the medical industry can be to women. And the fact that when you hear about these doctors who like listen to women and ask the proper questions and lead you to a diagnosis that not only changes your life, but answers questions you've had for decades. The fact that that's an anomaly is really 
infuriating. So this becomes the breaking point for her marriage. She goes home after this major surgery. She had gotten it right before Thanksgiving, thinking she could heal over the Florida Day weekend and go back to work with nobody knowing because of the shame that comes around. Obviously, anything that has to do with being a woman, you're considered weak, God forbid, if you have to deal with the problems of your own body. And obviously, the surgery ends up being much more extensive than even the doctor had thought going in. So her mom and her aunt had flown in to take care of her. And she says, they tended to me for hours while my husband toiled in his office below. Over those many weeks on my back, staring at the white ceiling, I had ample time to think. There was nothing to distract me, no work I could do to keep busy. Now the thoughts that had exploded like little bombs in my head as I drove up Fifth Avenue, that inky fall, could no longer be muffled. And then at the same time, she's experiencing a lot of anger because of the lack of diagnosis. So there is this long kind of mourning period where she's thinking about the fact that for one week out of every month for her entire life, she's been bedridden with pain. And it's just because doctors hadn't listened to her her entire life. And so I feel like there are a lot of emotions really crashing down on her, but like mainly that where was her husband? Yeah. So her husband's (laughs) just in the house not helping at all. And she had even when she got her diagnosis, she had had her doctor call Salman to explain the severity, being like, well, I hope if a professional tells him he'll take it more seriously. And he still is not very sympathetic to her. Yeah. And she just starts getting into all the fights and the fact that, you know, obviously he's super smart and he would use his rhetorical acumen to just destroy her in fights. And she says, of course, just because a point is well made doesn't mean it's right. I was articulate enough, but couldn't compete rhetorically. After a while, I was simply defiant. I was left to grapple with the most intimate effects, those that only a partner can know, by myself. I felt hollow both in spirit and in body, my insides having been scalded, carved, and scraped out. The loneliness turned into anger. What about in sickness and in health? What about I'm sorry I gave you such grief that when you were very ill? What about I'm sorry I didn't believe you on our anniversary when the ambulance had to take you away? Now, in retrospect, I can see how my husband had suffered. I mean, she gives a little too much grace to him, in my opinion. Yeah, I'm sorry. (laughs) Like, no one's owed sex, first of all. And I know I've gotten in trouble before for calling people uggos, but <laughs> look at a photo of them. Tell me that that man has any place in his life that he should feel entitled <laughs> to even be looked at by Padma. <laughs> I don't care how smart or dazzling he was. He was lucky to get the shot. Few people could resist his charm the way he dominated a dinner party and made you glad you were there to listen. This made him a glorious friend and a party companion. But after a party, everyone goes home. Me, I went home with him. I was the full-time live-in audience. To be fair, my husband didn't change during the eight years we were together. I knew what I was getting into. I think, however, that I changed, as do most women between 28 and 36. And I agree. So their relationship is not in a good place. And it comes to a breaking point when she is shooting another season of Top Chef. He had come down to visit her on set for their anniversary. And she had quit smoking for him and then started smoking again on set. And he didn't know about it. So he comes to visit her on set and she, not realizing her mic pack was on, was like, tell him I'm not done working yet because I want to go have a cigarette. And he, in the control room, heard her lie about what she was doing in front of all of the other people on set. It just was very embarrassing for him and it kind of was the end. But she talks about other fights that they've had. At one point, he called her a bad investment. And I'm just like, what? the fuck are we forgiving here? Like, why are you being so nice to him? That's one of the meanest things I've ever heard. She also Mm -hmm. describes how he would be full of rage and storm and slam doors. It seems like they got into really like heated arguments where he was very nasty and vicious. Yeah, she says, I don't regret one day I spent with him, nor did I leave a moment too soon. And I'm just like, that's a lovely way to look at it. But he seems like a real pill. When she got the cover of Newsweek, he was like, well, that's good for you. They didn't give it to me till someone threatened to kill me. And she was like, "Okay, so are you happy for me or no? I mean, she constantly talks about like being afraid to tell him about accomplishments because he would just be salty or weird. He really wanted a prize. And unfortunately for him, she ended up being very accomplished. 
I will say the idea that she could be on the cover of Newsweek and she was still like, I didn't have my foot in the door anywhere. I'm like, okay, no. As your own husband, Salman Rushdie said, he didn't get the cover of Newsweek till someone tried to kill him. So maybe it's a pretty big deal. Yeah. I mean, we see this all the time. A guy will marry a girl who's floundering thinking like, I'll be the only thing keeping her afloat. And then if she finds another thing, he's like, that's not what I wanted. I don't even think he wanted to save anyone. I don't think he had that much effort to give. He really wanted a prize. Like, look at me. I'm this genius and I get a beautiful model. She's so beautiful. She talks about her divorce and she says, I had left because I couldn't stay. There had been no shortage of love, no infidelity. It was a simple lack of empathy on both of our parts. Racked by my own wounds and emotional fatigue, we could not soothe each other and down we went spiraling apart. I don't know that there wasn't infidelity. You met this man while he was married and then you weren't having sex with him for like a year because you were sick and he was traveling a ton without you. There's no infidelity that you knew of. I wouldn't stake my name on it. Anyway, so then she gets into her parents' relationship. And we'll just run through some of this. Her parents met when they used to put ads in the paper for, you know, eligible women seeking husband in India. And so then men would come and talk to the father. And this man, he was rebellious. And he came and talked to the dad. And the dad was like, not that one. And of course, you can't tell a 20-year-old woman, not the bad boy. Yeah. So she marries him. On their wedding day, she catches him with his cousin. And she's like, yeah, but we weren't married yet. So once we're married, he'll be better. He wasn't. Immediately, not better. She gets pregnant pretty quickly. The first night they had sex. Yeah. She conceives and he's still out and about all the time. They move into a building in the same building as his cousin. So he's just going downstairs and cheating on her constantly. One famous night, he was out all night and his friend dropped by and was horrified to find a very pregnant wife home alone and stays with her all night, finally leaves. And when her husband comes back, she's like, where were you? And he goes, oh, I was with my friend. The friend who had been there all night taking care of her. I kind of thought they were going to get together. I was like, oh, what a love story. But she is a very strong woman. And she told her dad, I want a divorce. And the dad was like, oh, divorce, that's pretty gross. So in India, you're not supposed to get divorced specifically at this time. You would have been very much like ostracized from society and kind of looked down upon. And you're really told no matter what happens, infidelity, abuse, you just stick it out. And the father had come up to visit. And apparently the breaking point was... Yet when he heard her husband spit, your daughter is ready to lick my boots. My grandfather sided with his daughter over tradition and took her and me back to Delhi. They divorced a year after, but because divorce was so unheard of in the middle class Indian society, people looked at divorces with a sort of incredulous shock and wonder as if they were somehow criminals. They were ostracized from everyday life because of an invisible scarlet D hovering over them. So because life was pretty untenable in India for a divorced woman and mother, she decides to go and try and make her way in America. So she leaves Padma with her grandfather and she goes to America. She's a nurse. She studies for her nursing degree in the United States and gets it. She becomes a nurse in New York City. And two years after she leaves, she calls for Padma to come meet her in New York. So Padma was born September 1st, 1970. She moves to New York on Halloween night, 1974. She says she like came in and was so upset because there was this giant bucket of candy in their apartment. And every time someone rang the door, some kid dressed up as a goofball got her candy. And she was like, why are you giving all my candy away? Yeah. And she was like, I don't understand why the streets are just like crawling with beggar children. (laughs) (laughs) Why is everyone dressed up like a witch? Listen, I am always all about having a cozy bed year-round, but there is something about having a cozy place to curl up during the winter months that is just 
so important to me. Having bowl and branch sheets on my bed when it is so chilly out and all I want to do is come in from my evening bug walk and jump right into bed is such a game changer for me. Even though bug likes to sleep in the exact center of the bed, my bed is so comfortable I barely even notice it. I have spruce in the signature hem sheet set. Claire has white. Both of our beds are so comfortable. Bug actually tried to jump in Claire's bed the other day. That was uncalled for. But my bed is so comfortable. I love the way the material feels against my skin. I love the way after a fresh wash putting those on the bed, it takes a bed that is pretty comfortable already and makes it maybe the most comfortable bed of all time. I don't know if there's a place I could compete for it, but if I could, I think I would win. I also love the way that even though the sheets are so soft and cozy, they have such a classic and just polished look to them so that even though my bed is just like the softest place on earth it looks beautiful I want to take a picture of it every single morning after I make the bed and it makes me want to make the bed the Bull and Branch signature hemmed sheets are a bestseller for a reason. Bull and Branch uses the highest quality threads on earth. Their sheets are made from slow-grown organic cotton for a superior softness and a better night's sleep. They feel buttery to the touch and they're so breathable. They're perfect for cool nights and warm months. The signature sheets come in 10 versatile colors in all sizes, from twin all the way up to a California king. They're designed to feel incredible for all sleepers, made without toxins, free from pesticides, formaldehyde, and other harsh chemicals. Bowl and branch sheets fit the deepest mattresses and are labeled with top and bottom tags, so making your bed is easier than ever. Clean sheets Sunday have never been more stress-free for me. Make the most of bedtime with Bowl and Branch sheets. Get 15% off your order when you use the code CMBC at bowlandbranch.com. Exclusions apply. See the site for details. That's bowlandbranch, B-O-L-L-A-N-D, branch.com, promo code CMBC. So they live in the Upper East Side, but very quickly her mom gets a boyfriend and they move out to Queens together. So they live in this house. And again, I don't know how some women do it. So her mother worked full-time as a nurse to support herself, her daughter. Her boyfriend was a cabbie who she was putting through radiology school that she paid for with her nursing. And then on top of that, she marries him. All of his family would come and stay with her. So she used her citizenship to get green cards for his mother, his brother, and then like four or five other of his family members who all stayed with them while they got their feet on the ground. And she supported the whole family. I don't know how she did it. And she would still find money to take Padma to experience culture. She was like, we live in New York City. We live in America. I want you to go to plays. I want you to see museums. She was like very interested in taking in the world. And she really taught Padma to explore. They were in Queens. So there was a ton of culture. There was a ton of other Indian people there. And Padma was like, obviously, America was different, but I never felt completely isolated. There was just a lot of kids in the building. It was a jam-packed life, but it was fun and full of love and culture. Until one of the people that they bring over is the husband's cousin, who's a 20-year-old, who shared a bed with Padma, who was seven. I was seven. One night I woke up with his hand in my underpants. He took my hand and placed it inside his briefs. I don't know how many times that it happened before since I suspect I slept through some incidents. Even the incident I remember rather well remains blurred at the edges, a sort of half dream. So she tells her mom about it, and her mom pretty immediately puts her on a plane back to India. And she ends up spending a year there living with her grandparents and her aunts and her other family members. And she has a really hard time processing this because at the time she felt she had done something wrong and gotten sent away. And reflecting back on it, she knows that her mom needed to take 
time to leave her husband. And it was like a little bit more complicated than that. A weird side note was her mom was a cancer nurse at Sloan Kettering where they were working on one of the Ayatollahs of Iran. Weirdly enough, Padma's life has had a lot to do. Yeah. <laughs> with Ayatollahs of Iran. And because of that, there was all these death threats on even her mom. And somebody had called their house and left a message on their machine saying, we know where you live and we're going to come get you and your daughter. So she's like, that could have been a big part of it, that my mother was receiving death threats. There was just a lot going on. In hindsight, there are a lot of reasons that it made sense in some ways for her mom to like put her on that plane and send her back to India. But at the time, she felt like she had done something wrong. And so unfeeling those feelings is not really something you can do. Yeah. And also, she is right to be like, if one of us was going to leave, it should have been him first. Yes. I think he stayed in the apartment. So a year later, she comes back and she and her mom are back living in Manhattan on the Upper East Side. So then she gives you the story of her grandmother, who's actually her step-grandmother. Her her biological grandmother had died when her mother was 13. And three years later, her father remarried, kind of not a young woman. She was 30, but younger than he was. So they're pretty close in age to her own mother. Her mother was 16. The new wife was 30. Yeah. And this woman was just like an unmarried 30-year-old woman who it seems like kind of was just given to the grandfather to be like, you guys get along well and she's 30, so we can't keep her anymore. She says back then, a woman was not seen as a full adult, but rather a ward either of her own family or of her in-laws. So she had been supporting herself in the city as a teacher and her family was finally like, you cannot do this another minute to be 30 and unmarried is like so freaky deaky. I can't believe I'm doing it. (laughs) Someone marry me. Jesus Christ. And her family was like, listen, if something happens to us, who's going to take care of you? So she marries the grandfather. And I have to say, like, these parts of the books I really loved. I thought this whole beginning section between the endometriosis, the story of her mother, the story of her grandmother. I feel like Padma does a really beautiful job of just, like, talking about the trials and tribulations of being a woman and how hard it's been and how quiet and strong and sad so many women's lives have been. And just like recognizing feminism in tiny rebellions and tiny differences. I once asked her if she was happy. That depends on what I'm able to get done today, she says, laughing. She told me that the completion of her daily tasks was the only thing that she felt she had control over. They were a form of meditation of solve. Kept busy, she had no time to ruminate and no time for opinions, certainly not feminist ones. I pressed her, I mean, are you happy with your life? I don't know, she said uncomfortably, as if she'd never really considered such a question. When there's little you can do, you do what you can. Happiness for my grandmother seemed to be a verb rather than a noun. She had so little control over her own life, yet she took control out of thin air for herself when she could. I mean, it seems like her grandma really loved the children. She really loved cooking and she really loved showing them cooking. We're not going to get into it, but this chapter is very full of food and the foods that they made in India and the things that they tasted together. I mean, I think that's one of the things that you just have to really read this book to soak in. I've always associated cooking with womanhood. At that moment in August 2007, when I didn't feel so womanly, when my insides were carved out and my marriage was a failure, the only thing I could take pleasure in was that golden sauce. She spends one to two years in India until she goes back and meets her mom again in Manhattan. I think for me, these are some of the lulls in the book in that they're not at all plot based. And I think you can have some like poetic ruminations and nostalgia, but she does like a good 30 pages of remembering the snack and remembering the feel of her grandpa and remembering when her cousin was born. And I have to say, these are the parts for me that felt indulgent. This book overall was like 50 pages too long. You can add them to spice up the story, but I think sometimes she got really stuck in just happy memories and like glamorizing It happens when she's in India. It happens when she's in Italy. There are these things you're like, okay, I want to be brought into the world. But sometimes if the world has no pace, I felt it gets very bogged down. 
Yeah, these are the parts that are really food-centric. And I think if you're a food person, they might honestly read a bit more interesting to you. I liked it, but I didn't really know where it was going. Some of it did feel very like you're writing this for your grandpa because you want him to know how much you loved him. And she did. She loved her grandfather so much. I think there was a lot of respect for that. At his core, he was a feminist and he had bailed the mother out of this horrible relationship. And he raised the daughters to be educated and smart and she was his favorite. And there was a lot of love there. And so I think some of the parts of this book, like this chapter, are very much like a love letter to her grandfather, which are great for them. It's not her best writing, I don't think. So then she gets into the filming of Top Chef and what it was like sitting at the judges table, what it was like to do that rapid fire tasting and judging and the snacks that she ate in between. Honestly, chili cheese toast is a recipe that she shares in this book. I might make this on TikTok this week because this is exactly my kind of food. I love just peppers and cheese on toast. And I feel like the thing that's interesting about some of these recipes that she shares is that there's just such a range of recipe in this book. I mean, none of the recipes are pretentious. The way she talks about food is very down to earth. I just, as someone who doesn't know how to make a goddamn thing, even when something is simplified to the simplest degree is still too hard for me. And the fact that some of these foods feel very like within reach, I really enjoyed. And so she talks about with the filming of Top Chef when she's constantly eating and tasting. She is surrounded by food made by top chefs. That's why they're competing to become the top chef. They're all tops. And so she gains quite a bit of weight throughout every season. She says every single season they like became accustomed to just knowing that things were going to have to be tailored from the start to the end of the season. And then she starts talking about the way she viewed weight growing up and beauty standards in general in India and in the U.S., And it leads her to talk about high school where she fully changed her name to acclimate to the whiteness in California, which is where she and her mother moved right before high school. And for years, she went by the name Angelique. Yeah, what I truly disliked in certain gloomy moments and not always consciously was the color of my skin itself, of which all that other piffle was merely a reminder. The insidious reason for a brown girl's self-loathing won't be surprising to any woman of color. I cannot rightly compare my own struggles to those of another minority, as each ethnicity comes with its own baggage and the South Asian experience is just one variation. As parents and grandparents often do in Asian countries, my extended family urged me to avoid the sun, not out of fear that heat stroke would sicken me or that UV rays would lead to cancer, but more, I think, out of fear that my skin would darken to the shade of an untouchable. I began to change into a person who contained two people within herself, a girl proud and connected to her culture and native country, and one who wished she could look just like her old doll, Helen. This is when she talks about being in New York. She didn't feel fully American, but she felt like there were so many other people who were immigrants and so many different experiences, and they were all together, and there were so many other Indian people with her. But once she went to L.A., they moved to Arcadia, which is an incredibly white neighborhood. And she's like, there were Mexican kids and Filipino kids, but like no one really knew what to do with me. And then on top of that, she was so tall. She was like five foot nine in seventh grade, and she just felt very othered in a way that was so different from her experience in New York. She was very mad at her mom for bringing there. She felt very lost. And as Ashley said, she ended up even changing her name for high school to Angelique just to try to assimilate harder. In Los Angeles, she says that while she understands L.A. is a diverse city, it is like very segregated in its diversity. So she's like, because we lived in a white area and I mean, I know L.A. has public transit, but L.A. has no real public transit. It's not like New York where she says as a kid, she had this level of independence where she could walk to the corner and get a sandwich. In L.A., she relied on her mother for everything. And if you weren't next to what you were looking for, you just couldn't really get it. To make matters worse, this was around the time I met Peter. We had only been living in Los Angeles for two years. I was still in sixth grade, living in our apartment in Arcadia. When I came out of my room one morning to the sight of a man snoring loudly on the divan in a big, dark heap. 
So Peter is from Fiji, but he's of Indian descent. And apparently that is a very different culture because she says when they were moved there to be workers, essentially, they fought hard to protect their culture, their Indian culture. And because of that, they almost froze in time culturally. So her own mother was raised in a much more progressive way than Peter would have raised her because Peter came from an incredibly conservative background where men and women don't even speak to each other unless they're married. And he also had a ton of anger issues. So their house became like this scary place where he was always yelling. He's always screaming. If a boy entered even just to do homework because they had a group project, he'd be kicked out of the house. If someone spoke to her outside on the lawn, he would come out with like a wrench. He was like a crazy person. And on top of that, it sounds like he got mad a lot. There's a lot of things that were broken in the house. He had a drinking problem when he drank. He had outbursts. So she meets Peter as a handyman who's just there. And then within a couple of years, she and her mom move in with Peter. When she's in high school, she gives her mom an ultimatum, essentially saying it's me or Peter. And her mom chooses her, but is still seeing Peter on the sly. And within about a year, her mom is like, yeah, no, I'm just like with Peter again. And to this day, her mom and Peter are together. It's an interesting roller coaster reading this chapter because at first the way she's talking about how volatile it was between her parents and her mom has already been divorced twice at this point. You kind of think that this is going to be another divorce. And then she talks about how she hated Peter. And now she's like, well, he's the best grandparent to my daughter. He loves her so much. They have such a great relationship. And you're like, oh, they're still together. And then she talks about why she hated him so much. And she says, you know, some of it was that he came when I already felt so lonely and he took my mother away from me and that hurt. Another thing was internalized racism. He felt so to me like representing everything I was trying to escape with my fake white name. And you kind of are like, oh, okay, maybe she was too hard on him. And then she gives us this sentence. My mother tried to mediate between us to no avail. It got so bad that once near the end of my sophomore year, Peter actually tried to run me over with his work truck. <laughs> and you're like, oh, okay, no, 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 no. You were allowed to hate him. You justifiably hated him. And the story was that somebody had offered to give her a ride to work that day. And when Peter saw her get into a boy's car, he rammed into their car repeatedly and then came out and started punching into the side of this guy's car, screaming for him to get out so they could fight. And that's when Padma left in tears and called her mom and said, I will not move back to that house with you, so I'll stay with a friend. The mother moved out shortly, but when she went to India for the summer and came back, they were back together and pretending like nothing had happened. I think Padma has a ton of self-awareness, and it's really interesting to hear her be like, here were the insecurities in me that allowed me to marry Salman, and here's what I was looking for. This is what I wanted, blah, blah, blah. But then, of course, as we were saying, she gives Salman all this grace of like, well, as a husband, it's hard when your wife doesn't have sex with you. And you're like, well, you were like in utter pain. Yeah, you were like writhing in pain constantly. You were, had a significant medical trauma. And then she's like, you know, I was a little hard on Peter. All he ever did was <laughs> like, try to kill me. But I guess it's all good now. I guess I think to this day, she is still kind of baffled about how her mom ended up with Peter because she does talk a lot about how when she lived in New York and it was just her and her mom after her mom had left her second husband, the cab driver, she's like, my mom, like no matter what she was earning, worked so hard to instill culture in me. It was very important to her to like have me experience the world and experience movies and museums and things like that and Broadway. And then she's like, what did she see in this conservative, close-minded, ugly guy? <laughs> And her mom had also put herself through a master's degree. Yeah. And this guy had left in seventh grade, which I'm sure was not his fault, but she still was like, it was crazy to me to come from this family where Padma had really been raised by her own grandfather and her mother that the most important thing in the world is education. And she really makes it clear that her family was like happy for her that modeling was so successful, but nobody was impressed by it. There was this expectation that when modeling was over, she'd go back and get a master's degree and that education was the most important thing for a woman. 
Her grandfather, impressively enough, had been a hydro engineer for the state. And then when he retired at 60, actually went back and got a law degree and then was a working lawyer for a while and then retired from that and became a tutor. Also, when he was doing engineering for India, he got a job offer from like the Canadian government for a lot more money, but he didn't want to pick up the whole family and make them move to Canada. So he turned it down. During high school, I think because of Peter and I'm sure other things, her and her mom became very distant. She says when she was home, she was never in the living room. She would never talk to her mom because that was like Peter's place. And she stayed locked in her house unless there was food to come out to. And she talks a lot about how like wonderful her mom was and how her mom is such a natural nurturer. When the AIDS epidemic began, she left City of Hope to become a hospice nurse. And that being a caretaker just comes so naturally to her in a way that she didn't really recognize as exceptional because she was like, well, she was my mom. Of course, it's her job to always have food around and always take care of me and always think of everything. Yeah. And she has this realization about not all moms being like that. She's like, I really just took for granted the fact that she was always there to tend to me and anything I needed. She was there to just care for me. Even now, I mean, when she was diagnosed with endometriosis and she had this surgery, her mom came to New York and spent months by her bedside. And she's like, I just for a long time thought that that was what moms do. And I realize now that that's what my mom did. So because of the tense relationship between her, her mom and Peter, she was eager to get the fuck out of there. As soon as it was time to apply to colleges, she was like, what are the far ones? So she goes to Clark University in Worcester, Massachusetts, which is random as hell. And yeah. of course she gets there and is like, oh, this is actually not the worldly experience I've been looking for. So she takes a semester off and goes to Spain and like learns Spanish. And while she's there studying, a friend of a friend is a model scout. And they're like, oh, yeah, come try being a model. And this crazy thing happens to her where her friend is like, oh, you should meet my friend who's a model scout. And the model scout looks at her and like puts her face in his hands and goes, she has good bones. Yeah, but she does. You don't have to get up close to notice it. You could notice those bones from a mile away. I like had seen one photo of her one time and I was like, oh, the girl with the good bones. (laughs) So she goes to the audition and they take her to a fitting at Elle. And this is when she gets into her scar. So she had always actually kind of wanted to be a model. I think, you know, she's 5'9 and obviously beautiful. And somebody had taken photos of her in high school. And she was kind of like, well, maybe I could try to be a model. And her mom was like, after high school. But what happened between then and high school is she got into a horrific car accident. Her, her mom and Peter were in the car. She had actually just been in the hospital for like a month. She really has had a lot of things happen to her in her life. And so she's casually like, we were coming back from Temple where we were giving thanks for my recovery from some... It was called Stephen John syndrome, a rare and life-threatening condition caused by an adverse reaction to medication or to a virus. Ulcers and lesions attacked and scalded my eyes, mouth, and throat. She was blind and mute for three weeks because she had so many ulcers all over her body and she couldn't eat and got down to 98 pounds. That is like a pretty traumatizing thing to have happen. And it's like context for this car crash. (laughs) So the car crash happens. This is, again, right after she had been in the hospital for a while recovering from a gnarly disease. Their car flies off the 101 freeway into an embankment 40 feet down. So she, I guess, had put out her arm to protect her mom. Peter broke his leg. After crushing my arm, the impact from the roof was so strong that it crushed her arm, and then through her arm, broke her mom's sternum, five ribs, and her mom's arm. She had a major surgery to correct her arm because it had been crushed. 
God, it took them an hour and a half to even get down to her. I don't know. It sounds horrific, but what it left is this giant, like, eight-inch scar on her arm. And she says the scar had initially been just a normal scar, but a keloid had formed, so it became raised and... Like, a different color than the rest of her. And it's just very noticeable. And she said she went from being kind of, like, insecure about being the only Indian girl in school to now she had this whole new insecurity where she felt really ashamed of her body because of it and always tried to cover it and stuff. And it was kind of, like, an obvious thing for her that, it, well, of course, it can't be a model now. Yeah. So she goes to this fitting at L and she's like, I have a scar. And they're like, we don't care. You're not even a person to us here. You're just a clothes hanger. (laughs) So she becomes a fit model and she's very anxious about her scar. I mean, her agency is worried about it, too. She gets signed at this agency and she like learns how to cover it with makeup. She is for a long time very self-conscious about this scar. So college ends and she goes back to L.A. She gets a modeling agent in L.A. And she's just kind of living with her parents. So she gets signed for this semester. She's like, I'm getting rejected constantly. And I'm just like, whatever. I'm too smart for this shit anyway. And then she gets into Madrid Fashion Week. And she's like, this is the most important thing a human being could do with their (laughs) life. And then they kick her out because she can't walk right. Yeah. (laughs) And it's like not her fault. She went to Madrid not speaking any Spanish. And so she picks some up. But she's like, there was some choreography. Like if you've watched Top Model, you know, sometimes the runways are not a straight line. Sometimes you have to like go in kind of a loop. And she's like, I couldn't get the loop. When they walked left, I walked right. After an hour or two of screwing up, the choreographer said I could leave. Phew, I'm done rehearsing. I thought I needed to recoup. (laughs) I'd come back the next day and show them how it was done. Nope. I soon found out I could leave as in leave and not come back. So she goes back home. She graduates college and she moves back to L.A. And it sucks. Yeah, she gets a modeling agent in L.A. And it's just like not good. She's not getting anything. She like gets signed by this agency and then they bring her in for a meeting and they're like, actually, your scar is bad. But then the person who originally signed her was like, let me fight for her. And he's like, yeah, fine. So she just spends a lot of time in the offices. She's like trying to become a model. And then an agent from Madrid is in town and he sees her and he's like, what about her? And she's like, oh, I don't know. I'm saving her for Paris. And he's like, no, I'll take her. And she's like, yeah, I'll go with him. I don't want to live with my parents anymore. (laughs) So she moves to Madrid. She moves into a model apartment. The age old story. Very quickly, she learns about the promoter meals where you get to go and eat for free. She eats her first real pizza. (laughs) Yeah, she has a real pizza. And she's like, oh, this is different pizza. And it's free because people just like having hot people at their restaurants. So she's out at the club one night and right off the bat, she meets a man. She doesn't know what compels her to go over there and take his tie out of his pocket and put it around his neck and bring him out to the dance floor. But that becomes her boyfriend in the next six years. Yeah, his name is Danielle. He's old. (laughs) It doesn't come out that he's old right away. First, we hear for chapters and chapters about how he spoiled her and bought her stuff and came from a rich family who had a house in Como and they were in the textile business and he would take her up to St. Moritz to go skiing and he proposed to her and she said, not right now. I'm not in the mood. And he goes, okay, that's fine. And they would go watch movies and talk about film and theater and blah, blah, blah. He taught her Italian. Then later, it turns out he was 17 years older than her. Yeah. Anyway, so when she's in Madrid, she gets sent out to Paris for a little while. And when she's in Paris, she's staying in a model apartment where everyone's mean. Someone like pees on her stuff. And she's like, all right, we're not doing this. That happened a lot. I've now heard a lot of peeing on people's stuff stories. And I have a lot. I mean, Padma and Alex Earl. I know. (laughs) What do Padma and Alex Earl have in common? I guess like hot girls know a slightly less hot girl who's so jealous they pee. I'm so grateful to like not have that problem. It's like you and Bug. That's so true. Sometimes Bug gets so jealous she pees. (laughs) 
Nobody lives a fast-paced boss babe lifestyle without a little bit of help. And the Weekender bag from Base is the ultimate little assistant to keep you organized, to keep track of your things, and also helping you dress to impress everywhere you go. Transform from day to night, boardroom to bar with Base. Base was created by the actress Shay Mitchell to make sleek and affordable bags, luggage, and accessories designed to help you travel effortlessly while still looking great. Base has thought of everything you could ever want in a piece of luggage. 360-degree gliding wheels, a cushioned handle, a built-in weight indicator, washable bags for your dirty clothes. Honestly, all the interior pockets your heart could ever desire. I love having the Base Weekender bag. It is so roomy. I have never in my life been able to pack for a long weekend in one good bag before. I'm such an overpacker. I just can't help it. And having the Base Weekender bag, I'm going to the Bahamas this weekend with just the Base Weekender bag. I'm so excited to travel just effortlessly. Every piece is made to look better with miles so you don't have to worry about it in cargo or overhead. And Base has over 30,000 five-star reviews. Right now, Base is offering our listeners 15% off your first purchase by visiting basetravel.com slash worm. Go to basetravel.com slash worm for 15% off your first purchase. That's B-E-I-S travel.com slash worm. She decides to go stay with her like old professor. Someone from her study abroad program is like a teacher in Paris. She was friends with his wife. Yeah. So she stays on their couch for a while. Yeah. Like an entire semester basically. And she starts living this life where she lives with them during the week where she sleeps on their couch. And he is this literature professor who's in Paris to do research for a book about Moliere. And he loves to cook. And he lives in this building in the 14th arrondissement where everyone in that building works for this publishing company or is a writer or runs a bookstore. So it's like all of these literati in Paris and they love to cook. So she's there during the week and just laughing and talking about cooking and food and learning how to use butter and stuff. And she says they really kept her humble because when she'd come home and like cry about not getting a gig, they'd be like, oh, sorry, you can't be the face of pantyhose. But I know one day you'll be the face of Maylocks by hook or by crook. They made it fun. And she also felt very stimulated and like amongst people she loved. And then on the weekend, she would go hang out with her rich Italian boyfriend who would take her all over Europe and also teach her to cook. And she learns Italian fluently at this point. And from the women in his family, she learns a lot of really good recipes. They make a lot of tomatoes around there. He also, because he's so into textiles, teaches her how to dress herself. Because he works with his textile company, whenever he goes shopping, he can call it research. And everything he buys because he's interested in it, he can put on the business card and he'll buy it in her size. So she just has all these beautiful clothes. He buys her a Rolex. Yeah, Danielle gave me the courage to feel like I belonged at the casting, scar and all. In less than six months, I'd gone from living with my parents after college and wondering how I was going to pay off all my student loans to going to La Scala, shopping at Kenzo, eating at Bice. My head was spinning. So this is another part of the book where at first I was excited and then it kind of gets bogged down again with the names and the places and the smells. And for a minute, I find that you can follow along, but there's only so much of somebody's glamorous life that you can just hear about and not really get to see, smell or taste or experience before you're like, okay, okay, okay. But it does sound glamorous and fun and incredible. And you just go, well, that's how you live in your 20s. You go to Europe and you just let every man in every country show you something beautiful and teach you how to cook and learn Italian and pick up French and pick up Spanish and read books. Her and her boyfriend had this thing where on the Sundays they would see three movies. They would go and watch like three old movies and then eat a snack between every movie. So they'd go to an incredible pizza place and an incredible pasta. We should do that. I want to see the cocaine bear. She was like, I needed one gig a month to cover my living expenses. And then she just ate cheese. 
cheese all the time. Especially because her living expenses were zero. She had no rent. Her living expenses were the flight back and forth between houses that she was living in. Yeah. And the cheese she bought at all the French marketplaces. And she's like, I flew from Paris to Milan every Friday. And so like all the pilots knew me and I'd sit up in the cockpits with them. The thing that's unsaid here is that she's beautiful. And I keep thinking about that episode she's in of 30 Rock. Have you ever seen that? Where she claims she invented the like sandwich bag. <laughs> and Jack Donegan's like, no, shut up. She did invent it. She's so smart. She's brilliant. <laughs> and I'm like, oh, I wonder if that's like a well-known thing about her that men are just like, yeah, no, please stay on my couch. And let me cook for you. I beg. <laughs> She says, my career so far had been an elaborate game of pretend. I was a model who barely got work and existed on the lowest rung of the business, who saw no indication of that changing. I was still effectively in debt to Luigi for the plane ticket to Milan and to city models in Paris. Somewhere in me, I understood that the farce would soon end and I would move back home, go to grad school and find a real job. And that changes when she gets an opportunity to shoot with Helmet Lang. And then that changes again when she turns down the opportunity to shoot with Helmet Lang. But then it changes again when she gets a different opportunity to shoot with Helmet Lang. Or sorry, Helmet Newton. Ugh, I can't believe there's more than one man named Helmet. That's crazy. So she gets this Helmet Newton opportunity. And here's what I want to say. Backing up, at this point, the scar had been like the focal point of her career. She went from being worried about being a woman of color. It's already harder for her because she's not the white blonde person they're putting on toothpaste commercials. And so she's already at a disadvantage that she felt like had been a bit evened in Europe. But on top of that, she's like fighting her scar. And she's like, every time someone sees the scar, they're like, oh, no, what do we put you in? She had done some really painful surgeries to try to fix it. She had a doctor like slice it off and then she kept going for early stage microdermabrasion. This would have been in 1992, 93. I don't think they had technology back then. She said it was like brutally painful and she had to go for a dozen surgeries. They were just shooting lasers into her arm. With a glass of wine. Good luck, they said. So she had done everything she could to fight it. And I guess Helmut Lang saw a photo of her scar and friggin' loved it. So then she goes to meet with him. Wait. Did I say Helmut Lang again? Yeah, I don't know, man. You guys know who we mean. We're talking from henceforth, any helmet is Newton, regardless of what we say. (laughs) So Helmut Newton is obsessed with this scar, so he brings her in for a meeting for this big commission project, and she's going to have to be full nude cooch to the wind. And also, this isn't just a regular project because it's commissioned as for some Japanese businessman to hang in his living room. And she goes, this was an odd reaction, I now realize, but for some reason, I'd rather have thousands of people staring at my body than just one. No, I actually 100% understand where she's coming from. Having one man look at your naked body makes you feel like a prisoner. But to have everyone do it, you're like, now it's art. And at least I belong to the art. Yeah, it's like I'm doing it for art. But in that situation, you're like, I'm doing it for that guy to own my image. It's like very odd. I mean, it's no different than if somebody was looking at your Instagram. That's fine. If you found out someone had printed out your Instagram and like hung it on their bedroom, you'd be like, what? The other thing that her boyfriend says to her, so they go and they look at Helmut Newton's old work and her boyfriend goes, if you're not comfortable with this, you shouldn't do it because you will not pull it off. He goes, you can fake being peppy for a Folgers commercial. You can't fake being confident when your labia is out. So she says no. She says no, but then he goes, well, I've got this other thing coming up. It's a calendar and it's like the Pirelli calendar where this brand, Lavazza, does a calendar. And they only want her to be topless. And she's like, well, at this point, when I was seriously considering showing you my vagina, what is a nipple at this point? And so she does it and it catapults her career. She shows up and her friend, the makeup artist, had completely covered the scar and Helmet was like, where's the scar? And after that, the scar became the focal point and people started hiring her because of the scar. Can I say... I still think they hired her because she was beautiful. Yeah, but it was like a cool thing. It was a cool thing and people didn't want her to hide it anymore because Helmet had co-signed the scar and been like, this is actually very cool. 
But I think she gives a lot of credit to the scar for being the thing that people saw when really I think it was casting directors needed a green light to hire this beautiful girl in spite of her scar. I was soon booked for an 18-page shoot for Italian L. I shot Roberto Cavalli's first campaign. She booked shows in Paris. And she's like, stylists still checked my sleeves, but now they were checking to make sure that the sleeves are short so that everyone knew who I was under all that makeup. And then she talks about how that gave her so much confidence and his opinion of her was what it took to change her opinion of herself. Today, I love my scar. It is so much a part of me. I wouldn't remove it even if a doctor could wave a magic wand and erase it from my arm. I've started seeing my body as a map of my life. I can tell a story about every imprint life has made on my skin. The mosquito bites on my back from when I slept under the Sardinian sun the summer I first fell in love with Danielle. The scrapes on my legs from the rock in the Cuban Sea during the filming of my first movie. In her introduction to women by Annie Leibovitz, Susan Sontag asks, a photograph is not an opinion, or is it? I believe it most certainly is. A photograph can change the way you look at yourself. Perhaps it was under the rare light or through the right lens that I really saw myself for the first time. I have Helmut Newton to thank for that. I was able to liberate myself from that shame and instead draw confidence from my scar. I love that for her. Me too. So because she was a foreigner who could speak Italian fluently, they loved having little sound bites from her for all of the things. And so she gets hired for what essentially is the Today Show in Italy. It's called Domenica In. <laughs> I think I'm saying that right. I think so. I think that's close. And she says, I spent every Sunday for six months on live Italian TV in Rome. It was a training ground for every TV job I've ever done since. It was six hours a day and it didn't even have a five second delay. That reminded me of what Betty White used to do in the 1920s. She would just be on TV for hours and hours and hours. When the show's host teased me, I teased back, attempting a gentle insult like jerk, but accidentally using the word stronzo, which essentially means piece of shit. The slip up earned me a clip on Blob, the Italian version of Talk Soup, a show so popular it spawned the verb blabato, as in they blobbed me. Fun trivia. I guess that's like their version of punked, like the way we were like, oh, you got punked. That's true. They got blobbed. <laughs> you could blob me pretty easily. Imagine me on TV, man. If you guys heard me unedited, blobbed. I've never said a word correctly on my first attempt. <laughs> so then she talks about getting more into acting, and she'd always hoped to be an actor. She had that degree. She was getting very goofy roles. She was in Glitter yeah. with four-time CNBC episodist Mariah Carey. <laughs> Anyway, so she talks about starting on Top Chef and how the experience on Italian television was exactly what she needed to be a host of Top Chef and how she was very eager to learn a lot about food because she was a bit self-conscious, even though she had a lot of experience cooking and she was an experienced home chef and really prided herself on the food she cooked at home. She was like, people are going to say, like, why is this model hosting the food show? She's like, it's not the same as Heidi Klum doing Project Runway. So she tells you all about Video Village, which I don't have time to get into. Be a PA if you want to learn about Video Village. She tries to give everybody their due. And I will say one thing about a book is when you try to cover all the bases, I'm like, yeah, I know about the production. She's like, everyone behind the scenes is so amazing. And I'm like, okay. And then she talks about being nominated for her first Emmy. It was the same summer as my divorce that the show received its first Emmy nominations. It hadn't really occurred to me that that might happen. The Emmy nominations were a turning point. I went from hoping that things would work out to seeing that they were working out. I am actually doing this, I thought. Maybe I'm not just flying by the seat of my pants. I didn't want to be passive anymore, personally or professionally. In that moment, I came into being as my real and present professional self. Bonjour, ma petite veil. <laughs> Was that right? Hello, my little worms. I have got to tell you about Babbel. I have always wanted to learn a second language, and after years of taking a second language in high school and in college, I have not gotten even half a step closer. I have no idea what I've learned, and it has been impossible for me to keep any of it in my noggin until Babbel. Babbel is a language learning app that has sold more than 10 million subscriptions. It's an addictively fun and easy way to learn a new language. 
Whether you'll be traveling abroad, connecting in a deeper way to your family, or you just have some free time, Babbel teaches bite-sized language lessons that you'll actually use in the real world. Like I said, I have always wanted to learn French. I don't know what it is about the language. I just think it sounds so beautiful and I've always wished I could speak it. And now I'm taking lessons from Babbel. And let me tell you what, I have never sounded cooler. Babbel's 15-minute lessons make it the perfect way to learn a new language on the go. I take little classes while I walk bug and I'm just walking around New York talking to myself in French. Honestly, I think I look cool. Other language learning apps use AI for their lessons, but Babbel's lessons were created by over 100 language experts. Their teaching method has been scientifically proven to be effective. With Babbel, you can choose from 14 different languages, including Spanish, French, Italian, and German. Plus, Babbel's speech recognition technology helps you improve your pronunciation and accent. There are so many ways to learn with Babbel. In addition to the lessons, you can access podcasts, games, videos, stories, and even live classes. And it comes with a 20-day money-back guarantee. Start your language learning journey today with Babbel. Right now, when you purchase a three-month Babbel subscription, you'll get an additional three months for free. That's six months for the price of three. Just go to babbel.com and use the promo code WORM. That's B-A-B-B-E-L.com, code WORM. Then we get into the sauce, the drama, the tea. From here on out, that's like the market point of what I have realized because of this book makes a good memoir. And it actually has me thinking about the larger genre of memoir. Oh. And something that I often see criticized, like a criticism I often see leveled against writers. When we were doing Harry's book, a lot of people were like, that's not exactly how it happened. Who the remembered? fuck cares? From this point on, she has a lot of details in here. This is the last of like the memories. And from here on, she's like, and here's what happened yesterday. And here's what happened the day after that. And actually not remembering exactly every detail is better for a memoir because it leaves you with how you felt. From here on out, she is so detail-oriented that I almost think she doesn't, because she's so close to it, she doesn't remember what's important and what's not. And it makes it a worse half of the memoir for me. Yeah. Like, it gets very bogged down and like, and then we ate this, and then we left here, and then we took a left. It has its moments where it goes back and it like kind of regains the thread of the earlier parts of the book where it's like the flavors from the important moments of her life. But there are also parts where you're like, there's no flavor here. You're just telling me yesterday. Yeah, this part feels too close to home for her to have the same reflection that she has on the earlier half of the book. It becomes very bogged down with details that I don't know would be important to her if you asked about these exact experiences today. Yeah, so this book came out in 2016 and the events from this point forward are from like 2007 to 2012. Okay, so first she meets this man. His name is Teddy Forstman. We're all supposed to pretend that we know who that is. I don't know if you guys are up in the private equity world. He's a billionaire. And she gives a whole to-do about how they met. So she is trying to fund a movie, and a friend of hers sets her up with a guy who's the head of IMG. And then she finds out that he's not like the head of IMG. He bought IMG because he's a billionaire and he owns several businesses. And she's like, why am I out to dinner with this guy? And Teddy thinks it's a date. She thinks it's a business meeting. She's like, I'm not ready to date anyone yet because I just had this divorce. He had previously dated Princess Diana, if you've heard of her. Yeah, he's a full-fledged billionaire. He had bought IMG. He was not the head of IMG. He owned it. And he was like, yeah, you're kind of small fish. Your little indie movie about Jambalahiri is beneath me. Yeah, he's like, I don't go to dinners to hear movie pitches. I bought IMG. He's like, if you want to meet somebody who can help you get this movie off the ground, I'm selling some paintings at Sotheby's. Come hang out with me in my private room. And apparently at Sotheby's, there's like the regular auction. And then the really rich people are in suites. And he's unloading Modigliani's. I don't even know what that is. Didn't someone say you look like a Modigliani painting? Oh. 
Yes, I do. do know who that is. I'm the muse. <laughs> I actually don't really know who it is because they just follow me around painting my essence. <laughs> So they get to know each other a little bit better there. She's very fascinated by him. She loves the guy with a story. And when you've got billions of dollars, you've got billions of stories. And then he's like, I want to see you again. And she's like, I have to go to L.A. And he's like, I'm going to L.A. too. Do you want to ride in his PJ? Yeah. And she's like, this jet was the size of my mom's first apartment. And it's insane. She's like, it's so crazy that he just had a living room in the air. And so they play this game on the way to L.A. where they each share one story per year of life. And she's like, when we got to 36, the game had to end because I was 36 and I had no more stories, but he had 30 more years. He was 31 years older than her, I think. She's like, I found out later that he had actually had the pilot ride around in circles for hours in the air so he could keep chatting. I'm like, well, that is a lot of jet fuel. She had fun chatting with him and she's like, I was weirdly drawn to him, but I had just gotten out of this relationship with Salman, like honestly that year. She had just broken up with him a few months ago. The divorce was brutal. And she's like, I felt very guilty because I had told everyone that part of the problem with Salman was the age. And she's like, I told Salman the age was the problem. And here I am dating a man who's now like even older than him. Yeah. My divorce had highlighted the faults in my relationship blueprint. I was old enough by then to recognize that the principles that had guided my choice of men could have been pulled directly from the She Has Daddy Issues handbook. I never knew my father. Until my 20s, I didn't even know what he looked like. So she's realizing that she's drawn to these older men. She's understanding that she has work to do in terms of the types of relationships she seeks out, but she's like very drawn to this man that she knows now. She says that her grandfather had been the top male role model in her life, and so she felt that she sought out mentors, like much older men who reminded her of her grandfather. And she's like, me and this guy did not have a lot in common. First of all, he had his age. And then he was a Republican, a staunch one. I'm a Democrat. He didn't like interesting food. He didn't like spicy food. He didn't like anything but ribeyes. And then, of course, she is who she is. He's very Catholic. I don't know. They just have such different lives. But she's like, he was so gentlemanly and respectful. And I was just so intrigued by him and his confidence. And he was calling her constantly. And she was like, unlike the Salmon thing where I couldn't stop answering the phone, I would ignore him for days on end to the point where then he would call her friends and be like, get that girl out of a meeting. I have to get in touch with Padma. And she's like, it feels crazy now that he did that. And I'm like, yeah, it actually does feel crazy. If a guy went on a date with you and you wouldn't answer his phone call, so he started calling me, I would call the police. I would call the Patreon and be like, how crazy. (laughs) That's you thinking. That's the business acumen that actually Teddy would have because he's a billionaire. He had never met a woman who didn't want to date him back before because he's a billionaire. So he loved chasing her. And she did like him, but she had this fight in her that was like, I cannot be in a relationship right now. That is such a bad idea for me to just enter into a new relationship. But she's like, there was something about him that was very interesting to me. What Teddy wound up schooling me on was not business acumen, although he did indulge my every question and help me develop that aspect of myself. Teddy taught me about kindness, about love that is unconditional, a sentiment not dependent on acceptance, approval, or the expectation of something return. It was the first time I would ever feel this from a man who wasn't my grandfather, and I didn't know what to do with it all. If only I had embraced our differences sooner. I didn't know it then, but we had so little time left. So she's dating him, and she tells him, I just got out of a divorce. She's essentially never been single in her life. She went from college to like a week within getting to Milan. She got this boyfriend for six years. They broke up. She moves home. And then within a few months, she's dating Salman, and they're married. And now she's been divorced for like two months, and she had gone out on that day with that guy. So she really is like a serial monogamist. And she's like, I'm going to keep you at arm's length. I have to develop myself. But she keeps coming back to him. She spends a lot of time fighting it off. And they are kind of like in the talking stage for a couple of years. She also highlights one of the dates that they went on just to talk about what an unadventurous eater he was. He still said like, for your birthday, I want to take you to whatever restaurant you want. And she's like, well, there's this restaurant in, I believe, Denmark. Yeah. It's essentially the restaurant from the menu, if you've seen that movie. 
And she just like talks about the eating experience there. And it is just funny if you've seen the menu. But he like really loves her. And she's like, it's amazing because he wanted to do nice things for me. And she keeps being like, nobody had ever loved me like this. Where he learned all these facts about India. He read all the history of India. She took him to India for the first time. And she's like, he was so busy and so important. And yet he genuinely took time out of his life to indulge me and be my audience. And he thought I was just as important and like my businesses were just important. He could see I was scared, incredibly disillusioned about love, burdened by bad experience and wanting the world to go away. He would not go away. For two years, I told Teddy I didn't want a relationship, that I wasn't ready for one, that even when I would be, I wasn't sure he'd be the appropriate choice. Even as we spent more and more time together and grew closer and closer, whenever something good happened, Teddy was the first person I called. Whenever I needed advice about work or to vent or was scared, I called Teddy. We were thick as thieves and intermittently lovers, and I somehow convinced myself that I kept telling him I couldn't handle being in a committed relationship with him. I could keep us from getting too entangled romantically. Around this time, when she is trying to keep Teddy at arm's distance, she meets a guy named Adam. Adam Dell, also a millionaire, the brother of the inventor of Dell Computers. I will say, we looked it up, and of course, howrichamai.com or whatever has some of the worst guesses, but Teddy was supposed to be worth $1.8 billion. But then what I could find about Adam Dell is that he was worth $200 million, which is pretty povo in comparison. Chump change. And then his brother, Michael Dell, is supposed to be worth $10 billion. So Padme, you're doing okay. <laughs> She's getting some gifts. Having 10 bill in family circulation yeah. isn't too shab. So she meets Adam at one of her signings for her book tour, her second cookbook. She's like, he was so young. He was 40 or something. He was like her age. They were age appropriate. She says the whole thing was deeply unfair to Adam because he never really stood a chance. He was good to her and he seems like a really great choice and she's like with him I didn't have to think so much about stuff it was just like a fun hang and we like partied and had sex but she goes I kept seeing both men my relationship with Adam illustrated to Teddy that I meant business about dating other people but after a couple of weeks of Adam I would miss Teddy terribly I miss the verbal jousting the wit the all-consuming roller coaster that being this charismatic man entailed the whole thing was deeply unfair to Adam because he never really stood a chance no matter how easygoing and amenable he was to anything I threw his way no matter how charming or thoughtful or fun the fact was my heart already belonged to Teddy whether I wanted to admit it or not while I was utterly taken with Teddy or occupied with Adam, I still sorely missed Salmon. I didn't want to go back to my marriage, but the truth is I wasn't over my ex-husband. I was rudderless and should maybe have made myself be alone. And then another thing that's happening at this time is she was recently diagnosed with endometriosis. She wants a baby and she has recently become single and in her endometriosis surgery, she had one of her fallopian tubes removed and in a previous surgery that we mentioned from years ago, she had lost part of an ovary. She was a woman of a certain age who had less than stellar reproductive health and was single. Kind of. <laughs> she was single or in two very serious relationships, depending on how you looked at it. So when she's 38, she decides she's going to freeze her eggs. And she recommends this decision to anybody who's like 30 and hasn't had a baby yet. She's like, if I could go back and do this, it's like the number one thing I would recommend. So she gets her eggs retrieved and they get three and it's not looking good. So they are, again, not in a monogamous relationship. Teddy says, should we inseminate those eggs and you and I can have some frozen babies on the shelf? And she's like, I need to think about it. And he's like, how much time do you think we have? <laughs> And he is, by the way, at this point, 70 years old. She is 38 with three eggs. And she's just like, let's just sleep on it. I will say, Padma, you're being a bit crazy right now. Like, there are biological realities. I won't even say on your end. He is 70. Yeah. Whether or not the sperm work, he's going to be dead soon. Like you can't. Like, I mean, literally. You can't have an 80-year-old have new life and then expect him to make it to graduation. She's told that because of her surgeries, her endometriosis, her ovaries are, in fact, older than she is. 
the chances of her conceiving naturally are slim to none. Because of this phone call, she stops using birth control. I don't want to come down too hard on her, but I will say I don't think it's a smart decision if you are not in a committed monogamous relationship to not use birth control, but to be having sex. The fact that she was having unprotected sex with two people I just don't think you should do that in any situation. And like just because of STDs. That happens in old people homes. Like in nursing homes, it's a big crisis because everyone gets chlamydia. Because they think, oh, I can't get pregnant, so I use birth control. And it's like that's not all birth control does. Anyway, I'm just saying if you haven't had the exclusivity convo, con them up, idiots. Before we get into the drama that this unfurls. She creates a campaign around endometriosis with her doctor. It's called the Endometriosis Federation of America. They're doing a lot of really good work. And they have now partnered with a Harvard medical people, doctors, I guess. The doctor there, she was like, I suffered from this. And for years, I felt like I had to be silent because I didn't want to lose credibility as a professional. And just, we can't get into it right now. But you guys already know what we're going to say about the way like women's diseases are taken so unseriously. I mean, the way that Padma talks about coming forward with having endometriosis and she's talking about how it was so difficult for her to make the decision to talk about it and be public because she was like, a lot of my career relies on the fact that I'm hot. Yeah. And it's not hot to have this disease according to popular culture. She realized that one of the issues with her coming forward is more of a reason that she should come forward because we need to change the narrative around being like, it's not sexy to have endometriosis. Women can be sexy no matter what. And women don't have to be sexy if they don't want to be. But you should want to be. It's so (laughs) important. (laughs) But if your ovaries hurt, make sure someone takes you seriously. (laughs) So in the first six months of 2009, she's so busy, so productive. It moves faster than usual. She has like one final rendezvous in the winter with Adam. They realize it's not working. He moves back to Texas. They give it up. And then in June, he comes to town. You know, old flame dies hard. They have sex. But she's being like, okay, it's Teddy. I like Teddy. She finds out that September that she is pregnant and she does not know who the baby's dad is. Yeah. So she has to talk to Teddy because she in that same week had been with both of them. And again, this is where I say, if you are having sex with two people in one week, you should use a condom. Like do your thing. You are not in a committed relationship with either of them. But I just think that safety first. So she never even said that she was pregnant to the public, to anybody. But at some point, of course, she started showing and the newspapers just ran with it. And she had told her publicist when three reports come to you saying that I'm pregnant, we'll have to admit. She is not telling anyone who the father is because she herself does not know who the father is. Teddy at first is extremely angry with her. She says it's the first and pretty much only time she ever saw him express anger at her. I mean, the relationship with Adam had sort of loomed over their relationship, but the realities of it were very difficult for him to process. He yelled for some time, the first and only time he ever spoken so harshly to me, hurling insults my way. He did not say he would leave me, but he wanted no part of any scenario that included Adam. He had been aware of Adam, and while I saved him the details, I had been quite frank with him all along. I think he assumed my dalliance with Adam was something I had to get out of my system or would grow out of or tire of. He was enraged. The only thing, Padma, that would be worse than this that I will never forgive you for is not keeping the baby. I will never speak to you again if that happens. This caught me off guard, even though I knew full well about his feelings on the subject of abortion and a woman's right to choose. It was certainly another issue we differed vehemently on, but I was startled by his aggressiveness and his assumption that that's what I would resort to the easy way out. But who could blame him? I don't know if that's even the easy way out. Yeah, the thing is she like wants a baby really badly. It was like told by, to her by the doctors that it's nearly impossible for you to get pregnant. So I don't think it's easier to have an abortion and try again with a 71-year-old man. <laughs> ah, the easy way, making life out of dust. <laughs> <laughs> 
The dust in this part is his cum. <laughs> in case that wasn't clear. He coughs it out. <laughs> she wanted this child really badly. And so Teddy eventually comes around and says, no matter who the father is, I do want to raise this child as my own with you. And she's very moved by the fact that he wants to do that. They do a paternity test. And it is not, in fact, his child. It is Adam's child. And she wants to talk to Adam about it. And he's like, I don't think we should involve Adam at all. And she's like, I don't want my kid to have the same thing I had where she doesn't know where she came from and she doesn't know who her father is. Yeah, she talks about growing up and every time they went into a cafe or a restaurant or somewhere, she would look around and be like, could any of these men be my dad? And I have no idea. Yeah. And that is so hard. She's like, there's half of my genealogy that I just don't have a single idea about. So she says, I obviously can't do that to my daughter. So she decides to involve Adam. And he at first also has a hard reaction to it. I mean, he doesn't know if he wants to be a father. He's recently been dumped by this woman who's now saying, and by the way, we're linked forever. Up until very late in the pregnancy, he wouldn't agree on what we would do. How involved would Adam be in the baby's life? He had always wanted to be a dad, but he did not at all look forward to being a dad to a child who had her own family. We spent hours on the phone trying to talk through the different scenarios. I wanted an option where I stayed with Teddy, but Adam would still be a part of the baby's life and our child would know she was loved by everyone. I didn't want to lie about who her father was. I also didn't want to lose Teddy. I had finally realized the high caliber of man I had before me. I now had to set about making sure I did what was best for the baby while also making sure that Teddy understood how grateful I was that he had stayed by my side. I did not take that second chance lightly. I understand that Teddy was upset, but he chose to be like, I'm going to be with you no matter what. We love this kid. And he goes with her to a sonogram. And when they see the little heartbeat, he like squeezes her hand. and He's like, this is all that matters now. This life is all that matters to us. Yeah. He says this is our life now. And she's very moved by him saying our life, not your life. And then she talks a little bit more about her pregnancy, what she ate, what she experienced. Until the third trimester, she had a pretty easy pregnancy. There was no morning sickness. There was just not a lot of issues that hindered her life overall, except for just exhaustion because she was building a baby in her stomach. And then she starts having some problems. She has placenta previa. And she has all these thoughts of it being karma for being callous of the situation she put Adam and Teddy in. It does break my heart a little bit that she feels that way about herself. One of the things that made me kind of roll my eyes when Padma's talking about how great Teddy is is she's going on and on about all of the money he donates and how he does it so quietly because he didn't want people to know. I mean, he was worth $1.8 billion. Well, was he going to use it all himself? Of course, he was donating some. But she was like, the jet they were on was a gift to him by the owner of a jet company who Teddy had bought out and revived when it was failing in the 90s. And I'm like, oh, what a great guy. What a gift. Yeah, he earned that jet. Old Ted's staunch Republican nature and thoughts on abortion. Really, I'm like, well. I mean, how liberal can you be if you're like, you know, we've really disagreed, but not in a way that I wouldn't get on his private jet. (laughs) (laughs) So she starts having some pregnancy complications. She goes to the hospital. And every time she goes to the hospital, she calls Adam and is like, I might have the baby right now. It might be early. And he doesn't come. So she's on bed rest for a few months. And then finally, her daughter Krishna is born. Adam flies in. And Teddy was there with her when the baby was born. He's the first person to hold her. He is like raising this child with her. Adam is livid that Krishna's last name is Lakshmi and not Del. And it's like, well, Adam, where the fuck were you? Like, you still hadn't even agreed on what the co-parenting terms would be. He hadn't even known about most of the pregnancy. He hadn't been coming up when she was almost born. And he is now demanding all the time to see the baby. And one of the days, she's like, yeah, come in and see it. And then he's like, I want to come back tomorrow. And then she's like, that's fine. The doctor has to see me in the morning. So why don't you come after the doctor comes? And I guess the doctor was a bit late. So he kept calling being like, when can I come? When can I come? And she was like, later, the doctor is examining her like vaginal stitches and... Adam bangs through the door 
The doctor is like, you have to get out of here. And when he comes back, he is screaming and throws a tantrum. I will say like whether or not you believe that the energy of the room will affect the baby for the rest of their life. I do think screaming at a woman who's just given birth in front of a newborn baby is overall not the best vibes. So this puts a wrench in her relationship with Adam. Yeah. And when he finds out that the baby doesn't have his name, it enraged Adam. I did not know why this became such an alarming thing for him at the very moment. If indeed he became involved in Krishna's life, we could always add his name. My birth certificate has my birth father's surname, but no one even knew or cared. So this behavior immediately after the birth starts to shake her trust in Adam enormously. She's like, we never really dated. We didn't really know each other. We had these weekends together, but we never existed in the world together. Like we didn't just go about our days together. So I actually don't know this man who I now have a child with. She's like, I don't know what this anger that has erupted. I didn't know that that was in him. Like, what if this is in my daughter? So then she gets into a chapter that I had to really get through. It was very much her like Gwyneth Paltrow goop chapter about her brave decision to eat her placenta. I guess maybe at the time this was huge. I just don't care because it's a lot of I was going to have a natural birth with acupuncture and I was going to eat my placenta. She did eat her placenta. Yeah, she turned it into pills. She breastfed for a year and eight months. And then there's a lot of like, why are you feeding your baby food from a jar? Like, why aren't you making your baby natural food? It was just very like holier than thou. You should be feeding your baby like all organic homemade meals. I mean, she talks mad shit about Alicia Silverstone. And then she does this whole thing about bringing her baby back to India for a special food ceremony where the baby graduates from breast milk to solid food. But the thing is, she didn't even know about the ceremony. And then she spends like pages and pages and pages explaining it and deciding what they were going to eat, but not in like an important way. So she's like, I was thinking about feeding it yogurt, but my dad loved to make this food, but my grandma loved to make this food. So I was thinking maybe this, but then another time my baby had a bag of broth. And is it awful that she has broth? And I didn't know. If she, and I was just like, Okay, it's actually to me not that interesting what foods your baby naturally gravitates towards. And then she kind of is like, as a mother, you have to curate your child's palate. And it just felt very like, okay, I don't actually need all this help from you, Padma, with your billionaire boyfriend and your billionaire other boyfriend telling me about (laughs) emulsifying all my food and stuff. (laughs) And then she gets into the part about losing weight after her baby. And throughout this book, there is a long pattern of how hard it is to be a model who's known for being hot and being told that your value is hot. And then also someone who's trying to be considered seriously on a food show where she does literally have to eat like hundreds of bites of food. Yeah. And she talks about gaining 45 pounds with her pregnancy. And she thought she was going to bounce right back. And she absolutely did not. And it took her 13 months to lose the baby. Lose the baby weight. (laughs) (laughs) And she says the most important part of the journey was not the diet or the exercise. It was the emotional work to bring her confidence back. I just decided that I wasn't going to be upset if I didn't lose the weight. I didn't expect miracles and I was fine being my new size. My baby was the miracle. My body had given me the greatest gift, one that I had been told I shouldn't hope for. I was not going to feel bad about how I looked or expect to fulfill some vain image I had of myself. And she's like, and the minute I chose to be confident, people started telling me how great I looked. And I'm like, well, I will say you plus 45 pounds is probably still one of the hottest people on earth. You have like an insane body. But I will say to her credit, I do think that the way you carry yourself is one of the most important things. And there are so many models who are like four weeks later, snap back to bikini body and they're on the cover of Shape with a six pack. And she was just like, that's not going to be me. And if it's never me, I don't hate myself. Similar to her helmet photo, people can read insecurity in the way you move. And so like if you decide this is the body that I am confident in, I think that people will just be like, oh, you look so good. You're glowing. Anyway, so then she's filming another season of Top Chef and Adam sues the shit out of her. They're filming in the Bahamas. 
and they're staying at a resort. And I guess Adam doesn't have a job because he's staying on the Bahamas resort too so that he can see the baby once a week. And she says whenever she sends the baby to see Adam, she sends her mom, the nanny, and a bodyguard because she's so worried about leaving the two women alone with him in a way that might be vulnerable. She does not speak to him at all. She's really anxious about him having another burst of rage and then having her mom in a position to like talk him down. She's like, I want a professional buffer. To be fair, Adam had emailed me and left voice messages too, apologizing for his atrocious behavior. But now that I had seen that side of him, it frightened me to the core. It was the same fear and dread I had felt growing up when Peter raised his voice or lost his temper. I wanted nothing to do with that kind of person, and I was worried, to say the least, that the baby would regularly be around someone capable of that kind of anger. I don't know if this is controversial, but I don't think she was overreacting. Yeah, she says, We were all under strain and a terrible pressure cooker of hurt feelings, fear, anger, and mutual resentment. I think the force of that pressure was too much for Adam and he blew up. But some bells are hard to unring. I mean, she talks about that blow up that happened on that first day in the hospital. And it's like, I do feel like you're allowed to be kind of scarred by that. That is really traumatic for someone to have so little concept of the fact that you just gave birth. It is like an enormous bodily trauma to push a baby out of you or to have a C-section or whatever she did. And then he came and screamed at her like that is something that to me, I agree, is like very difficult to forgive. Also, he hadn't had any interest in raising the baby. Like yeah. when she told him he was the father, he didn't know what he wanted to do. It seemed like he was erring on the side of like, all right, you take it. Don't involve me at all until it got out in the press that he was a possible father. Yeah. And then what really enraged him was the fact that it had gotten out in the press that her name did not have his on it. To her, she's like, you don't even fucking care. Yeah, this is all optics to you. So then he's staying with them in the Bahamas and she is on set one day and finds out that a lawsuit is being filed. She finds out because the press calls her PR team to confirm it. She hadn't even gotten the paperwork yeah, yet. Yeah, it's clear that they had sent the paperwork to the press first. And she's like, that paperwork had our baby's social on it. Like, what are you doing? Some of the things he did are hugely irresponsible. So she finds out she's being sued. He wants sole custody, which is insane. That is an insane thing to think. And so Teddy has her back. She goes, he never once said, I told you so until then. He's like, you see how hard it is to have Adam in our lives. And he's like, all right, we're going to fight it. But even he's like, I don't know, man, the Dells have a lot of money and power and those are going to be hard lawyers to fight. So she just starts going through life and she's very nervous. And then, of course, they find out that Teddy has cancer. Yeah. A few months after this lawsuit is served, they find out that he has something in his brain. He has a bunch of different tests run and they say there's something in his brain. We have to do an operation. So the day of the operation happens to be her first meeting with a doctor who is going to ask her a lot of questions and determine if she's a fit mother. And so she's in the hospital that morning and she wants to reschedule this meeting. And they're like, any rescheduling makes you look unreliable. Keep the meeting. So she finds out that Teddy has glioblastoma, which is 100% terminal. Rare, invasive, incurable brain cancer. And then she has to go over and be cross-examined by the psychologist that Adam has hired. Yeah. So she is told that he has six to nine months to live. They spend the next several months just spending as much time as humanly possible with Teddy and then also dealing with this lawsuit where it eventually settles to the point where they say, all right, your custody agreement is almost the exact same as it was before, but now her last name is going to be Lakshmi Dell. Can I say, in these last two to three chapters, which are about the custody battle and the death of Teddy, who she loves, she manages to say like three or four times that her daughter's not allowed to watch TV. I know. She has a couple things in here that she says a few times. I loved her up until she's an inch self-righteous about motherhood with like what your baby should be eating and how long they should be breastfed. I know. And she does a couple walking it back where like she has this moment where she tells a story about how she had the very intricate plan in place of what foods would be introduced to her daughter when. And she's like at this restaurant that's like one of those hole in the wall dumpling places. 
and her daughter just like leans over and starts drinking her soup and she's like oh my god this was not supposed to be first <laughs> she's like and there he was dying watching golf the only thing my daughter was allowed to watch because she did not watch tv at this point she was one and a half i'm like okay keep fighting the good fight there's a lot more years left <laughs> i see you and your daughter on tiktok a lot so <laughs> how's that no screen time thing going Anyway, so Teddy is dying. She has to go to the Supreme Court of New York to fight for custody. And then Teddy ends up passing away. So he was diagnosed in the spring. He had his first surgery, I believe, in May. And then he dies in November. Over the next couple of years, her relationship with Adam is fraught. She like won't return a single call. He sends her an eight-page letter, handwritten letter, because they had had a mutual friend who was always trying to be like, please, he's changed. She just wants a better relationship with you, please. And she's very like adamantly no. She finally says if he wants to get in touch with me, he can write me a letter. So he writes her a long letter apologizing and she reaches out and thanks him for the letter. And then he keeps saying, well, maybe we could get dinner sometime for the daughter. I understand her fear. I do think she was a little bit harder than she had to be. Yeah. Because she is like, listen, he did love my daughter. He didn't win the custody case, but he got every weekend. And so he was spending a lot of time with the daughter. And she's like, he never skipped weekends. And he was very adoring of her. And so finally, around four and a half years, she has dinner with him. And then eventually they like do an activity together and it goes fine. And then they start doing full family activities once a month where they go to like Rockefeller Center for the Christmas tree or a dinner or something because they decide it's important that the daughter sees them getting along. And I agree that that is important. I do think she was really hard on him, but I also think it sucks that she has to be the one to acquiesce to him throwing these unreasonable wrenches. Do you know what I mean? Like the fact that things got so fraught is because he sued her while her boyfriend was dying of cancer. Well, he sued her and then the boyfriend was dying of cancer. But I actually like understand why he felt he had to sue if she like wouldn't return phone calls or anything. And they had a parental agreement put in place, I think, before the baby was born or right after the baby was born. Mm -hmm. It seems like he was very rarely allowed to see her and never allowed to be alone with the baby. And if you're not even answering texts or calls, it's not good for your child to say you're not ever allowed to be alone with your own dad who shows that he is a good parent. Yeah. And I do think at some point to be four years in and not responding to a text, it's not for the baby anymore. She wouldn't even walk down to the lobby to drop the baby off. She made the nanny do it. So at some point, no, she yeah. needed to let go. At some point, she needed to let go. <laughs> it sounds go. like she did and it all worked out. So good for them. The baby's 12. <laughs> so very beautiful now. But I do think she was very triggered by Peter and the fact that she had been raised by a dad. So I don't think she saw the importance of it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, this book was definitely written for you to be like, Adam was crazy. <laughs> One of my few criticisms is that I feel like you can feel the way that she was responding to the press and to maybe Adam's lawyers from four or five years ago. Because something that we did leave out is this paternity question about Padma. She's at the height of her fame with Top Chef. That's a huge show. And now we have this model and nobody knows which billionaire is the dad. I think she was hounded in a way that she had never been hounded before. That's what she says, and I believe her. And I'm sure it was horrible and humiliating. And I think also the horror of having someone that powerful and that much money coming after you in the courts. It seems like it actually the custody battle only went on for one week and was pretty amicable afterwards. But you could feel the way that she wasn't necessarily telling the story that maybe in 10 years she would feel as her story. But this stuff from her childhood is much more reflective. Even her relationship with Salmon is much more reflective. Yeah, and I felt that this was coming right off the tail end of her grief of Teddy. I think that a lot of this book was written in response to that grief. I loved it, though. I thought it was a really beautiful book. I thought it was very considered. The things I question about it are things because I, like, respect it so much as a book. Yeah, no, me too. I think that it was very good. I, I definitely recommend reading it. We're going to try to mix some of the things. <laughs> yeah, I definitely think we can make the toast. I think we can make the pickles. I, no, she makes a rice. I think I can make a kind of Okay, rice. I have a hard time making rice. Well, have you ever had directions? We're following a recipe now. 
All right, you guys, we love you so much. We cannot wait to see you at all the live shows. We love you more than anything. I'm so excited for the next few weeks. I hope you like this episode. I like you. Best of luck out there.